This is Medieval Death Trip for Wednesday, June 22nd, 2016, episode 26, concerning the problematic passions of King Edgar. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. We're back from a little bit of a hiatus, uh, as I found myself first traveling at the start of June, uh, and then working on a priority, tight deadline, freelance editing job uh, as soon as I got back. On top of that, the next episode I'd been working on kept getting longer and longer, which meant I'd need to be able to set aside even more recording time and even more editing time, and this threatened to fuel a procrastination cycle. Uh, But I think I've solved that problem by splitting this monster episode into two parts, and today we're going to have part one. In a way, we're doing a variation on the format of last episode, where we looked at one story as retold from different points of view. The story presently in question is that of the love life of King Edgar the Peaceful, whose death was the starting point of our stories last time, covering the murder of his son, Edward the Martyr. For one of our authors today, The history of Edgar's romantic pursuits is multifaceted, complicated, and not exactly exemplary. For the other, this knotty narrative is neatly straightened out into a noble tale of courtly love, uh, one of the first of the genre, in fact. For this episode, we'll focus on the more historiographical author, uh, and next time we'll get our dose of proto-chivalric romance. So our first author is William of Malmesbury whose version of the murder of Edward concluded our last episode. If Bede is the father of English history, then William has to be its, um, I don't know, godfather, fun uncle. He's certainly Bede's greatest spiritual descendant. Um, In her indispensable book, Historical Writing in England, Antonia Gransden calls him, quote, an important landmark in historiography, which is certainly a compliment, uh, but I'm not sure... I'd want to be characterized as a landmark, exactly. Uh, It's not as dynamic as father or standard bearer or trailblazer. Granston has a lot of praise for William's contributions to the craft of history writing, uh, especially his concern with reporting a true account as best as he can from reliable sources and in having an interest in cause and effect that's a bit more modern in approach and doesn't leap straight to divine providence or fortune as the primary forces directing human events. But Granston's praise does not lead to particularly pithy blurbs. Uh, perhaps the closest is, quote, He was learned and original and was a good writer. Again, fine, but not what you want on your book jacket. And as a historian herself, Granston wrestles with balancing William's genuine and impressive research skills and reportage ability with his stubbornly medieval tendency to indulge in digressions on quite fantastical tales and legends, uh, however much he may bracket them off from the main course of his history. Of course, those digressions are exactly the things I'm enjoying the most about reading William right now, Um, and I'm genuinely just now getting caught up with William. He's a writer that I'd read a lot about while I was doing coursework, but read very little from. And I'm not quite sure why this is. Uh, He's hugely important, both for his own work and in the influence he's had. Um, And he's very readable, more so than Bede, I'd say. And yet you won't find a Penguin Classics or a Oxford World Classics paperback of any of his work. Not that I can find, at least. 
Now, if you do a search today, you can actually find relatively cheap copies of his work in translation on Amazon, uh, but that's just because of the new digital publishing platforms that have allowed the out-of-copyright translation by J.A. Giles to be cheaply reprinted. But compare that to Bede or Jeffrey of Monmouth, uh, who are both readily available from major publishers. Uh, and even the Doomsday Book is available from Penguin, and that's some very dry reading. Uh, so I'm not sure why William is neglected in this way. Uh, my guess would be that it's just supply and demand. So English teachers do sometimes assign Geoffrey of Monmouth's Historia because of its connection to Arthurian materials, uh, whereas William kind of falls outside the usual focuses of a medieval literature class. Um, and I suppose undergraduate history courses don't necessarily assign primary sources as textbooks all that much. Uh, they'll use readers instead, especially for medieval sources. So the only market left is grad students, professors, and enthusiasts. Uh, but I don't know. All I can say is that I encourage you to take advantage of the digital platforms and get yourself a copy of William's work. Uh, or just keep listening to this podcast, because I can guarantee you we'll have quite a bit more stories from William in the future. All right, let's sketch out a little more clearly just who William of Malmesbury was. His biography isn't as shrouded in shadows as those of some of our other monastic authors, but it's not fully fleshed out either. William was born sometime around the year 1095, from a Norman father and an English mother. As a child, he was given as an oblate to Malmesbury Abbey. Uh, in this context, an oblate is someone, frequently a child, pledged to become a monk and sent to live and work in a religious community. It's a kind of monk apprenticeship. This might seem kind of heartless to us, especially to do to a child of the age of seven or so, as Bede was when he was sent to Monk Wearmouth, uh, and probably not far off from the age William would have been when he entered Malmesbury. It conjures up images of Dickensian orphanages and the dumping of unwanted children into joyless workhouses. But for well-to-do families, this practice was a bit more like sending a kid off to boarding school. Uh, and I mean that in the posh English sense, not um, the American one, where boarding school carries connotations of reform schools for teens with behavioral problems or brutal military academies. Uh, sending a child off was a fairly normalized custom, especially for the aristocracy, uh, where children were also sent away for fosterage at other noble houses. And if you have one or two male children who are positioned to inherit the aristocratic titles and careers of the family, then a clerical career was really one of the few remaining options for children further down the ladder of inheritance uh, for them to have a chance at a high-status position. Oh, Ted, we hardly even know him when you think about it. Does he have much of a family? Yes, uh, his parents are alive. And he has a brother, I think, a doctor in America. A doctor, wow. <laughs> you wouldn't believe that, would you? But that used to be quite common, you know. The favorite son would become a doctor, and then the idiot brother would be sent off to the priesthood. <laughs> Your brother's a doctor, isn't he? Yes. <laughs> also, oblates were given the chance to leave monastic service when they hit puberty, a little bit like, if you squint your eyes, uh, the Amish custom of Rumspringa. And this potential release also softens the sense the child is being sold into a kind of monastic indentured servitude. Uh, far from it, in fact. The privilege of such a clerical education uh, was easily something you'd pay for um, through patronage of that religious house. Anyway, William did grow up in the monastery and excelled at literary and scholarly pursuits. He became the abbey librarian 
and, like Bede, shows an energetic curiosity for finding and comparing a range of different sources. Unlike Bede, who appears to have remained cloistered all his life at Monkwearmouth Jarrow, William traveled widely and is one of the first English historians to incorporate evidence gleaned from personal observation of ancient monuments and topography in his own writing. He even wrote and revised while traveling around, as one surviving manuscript suggests. Uh, this is a pocket-sized traveling manuscript of his Gesta Pontificum Anglorum, or Deeds of the English Bishops, which is written in William's own hand in lots of different colors of ink, indicating that he was adding to it at different times and in different places. Uh, and it's full of marginal additions, revisions, and erasures that show him actively reworking his text while out and about. The other mind-blowing thing about William's career as a historian is that two of his most influential and lengthy historical works, the Gesta Regum Anglorum, the Deeds of the English Kings, and the aforementioned Gesta Pontificum Anglorum, were both initially drafted in roughly the same one-year period of time, around 1125, when William was about 30 years old. Now, he did continue to revise and rework these books, but the bulk of the core text was written at this time, which amounts to something around 800 modern book pages of text, which is insane. In fact, that number makes me question Gransden's assertion that both of these books were written in a single burst of creative activity in 1125, um, even presuming that this activity was grounded in years of research beforehand, and even allowing for a hundred or even, why not, 200 pages worth of inserted charters and letters and other documents. Uh, to call this level of production intense is an understatement. And it may well have affected William himself. After 1125, he doesn't write any new history for about a decade. Certainly, he gained some fame in the wake of completing his first two histories, and the books are being copied and promulgated throughout this period, but he also seems to have come in for some criticisms from offended parties, perhaps to the detriment of his career at Malmesbury Abbey. He has a second, longer, but less intense period of activity, starting up again ten years later, around 1135, and running up to his death in his late 40s in 1143. In this last decade, he revises the two histories, notably removing some of his more critical comments and unflattering portrayals of certain leading figures, uh, but he also writes, or was in the process of writing until cut short by death, his other important history, the Historia Novella, or History of Recent Events, which reports, sometimes firsthand, on the events of King Stephen's tumultuous reign. William also wrote saints' lives and biblical commentaries and a few other things, uh, but it is as a historian that he is most celebrated. And our first text for today is from one of his histories, uh, the same one we heard from last episode, the Gesta Regum Anglorum. Indeed, we're coming into that text not long before the account of Edward the Martyr's death that we heard last time. Now we're about to hear William's discussion of King Edgar's character, which repeats a detail we had from the Melrose Chronicle last episode about Edgar's strategy for ensuring the security of the island of Great Britain by sailing all around it in this sliding tile puzzle of fleet movements. William starts with praise of the king's achievements and bravery, but then, in an example of William's famous even-handedness, provides counterexamples to take some of the shine off of the initial portrayal. Now, you might note that William rather carefully frames the negative examples as tales bandied about by other sources, 
uh, but he doesn't exactly refute or reject them either. He balances them against the more positive claims. So, without further ado, here is William of Malmesbury on the character and passions of King Edgar, as translated by J.A. Giles. Although it is reported that he, King Edgar, was extremely small, both in stature and in bulk, yet nature had condescended to enclose such strength in that diminutive body that he would voluntarily challenge any person whom he knew to be bold and valiant to engage with him, and his greatest apprehension was lest they should stand in awe of him in these encounters. Moreover, at a certain banquet, when the prating of coxcombs generally shows itself very freely, it is reported that Kennedy, king of the Scots, said in a sportive manner that it seemed extraordinary to him how so many provinces should be subject to such a sorry little fellow. This was caught up with malignant ear by a certain minstrel, and afterwards cast in Edgar's teeth with the customary raillery of such people. But he, concealing the circumstance from his friends, sent for Kennedy as if to consult him on some secret matter of importance, and leading him aside far into the recesses of a wood, he gave him one of two swords which he had brought with him. Now, said he, as we are alone, I shall have an opportunity of proving your strength. I will now make it appear which ought deservedly to command the other. Nor shall you stir a foot till you try the matter with me, for it is disgraceful in a king to prate at a banquet and not to be prompt in action. Confused and daring to utter a word, Kennedy fell at the feet of his sovereign lord and asked pardon for what was merely a joke which he immediately obtained. But what of this? Every summer, as soon as the festival of Easter was passed, he ordered his ships to be collected on each coast, cruising the western part of the island with the eastern fleet, and, dismissing that, with the western to the north, and then again with the northern squadron towards the east, carefully vigilant lest pirates should disturb the country. During the winter and spring, traveling through the provinces, he made inquiry into the decisions of men in power, severely avenging violated laws, by the one mode advancing justice, by the other military strength, and in both consulting public utility. There are some persons, indeed, who endeavor to dim his exceeding glory by saying that in his earlier years he was cruel to his subjects and libidinous in respect of virgins. Their first accusation they exemplify thus. There was, in his time, one Athelwald, a nobleman of celebrity and one of his confidants. The king had commissioned him to visit Althritha, daughter of Ordgar, Duke of Devonshire, whose charms had so fascinated the eyes of some persons that they commended her to the king, and tasked him to offer her marriage, if her beauty were really equal to report. Hastening on his embassy, and finding everything consonant to general estimation, Athelwald concealed his mission from her parents, and procured the damsel for himself. Returning to the king, he told a tale which made for his own purpose, that she was a girl nothing out of the common track of beauty and by no means worthy of such transcendent dignity. When Edgar's heart was disengaged from this affair and employed on other amours, some tattlers acquainted him how completely Athelwald had duped him by his artifices. Paying him in his own coin, that is, returning him deceit for deceit, the king showed the earl a fair countenance and, as in a sportive manner, appointed a day when he would visit his far-famed lady. 
terrified almost to death with this dreadful pleasantry, Athelwald hastened before to his wife, entreating that she would administer to his safety by attiring herself as unbecomingly as possible, then first disclosing the intention of such a proceeding. But what did not this woman dare? She was hardy enough to deceive the confidence of her first lover, her first husband, to call up every charm by art and to omit nothing which could stimulate the desire of a young and powerful man. Nor did events happen contrary to her design. For the king fell so desperately in love with her the moment he saw her that, dissembling his indignation, he sent for the earl into a wood at Werrell, called Harewood, under the pretense of hunting, and ran him through with a javelin. And when the illegitimate son of the murdered nobleman approached with his accustomed familiarity, and was asked by the king how he liked that kind of sport, he is reported to have said, Well, my sovereign liege, I ought not to be displeased with that which gives you pleasure. This answer so assuaged the mind of the raging monarch that, for the remainder of his life, he held no one in greater estimation than this young man, mitigating the offense of his tyrannical deed against the father by royal solicitude for the son. In expiation of this crime, a monastery which was built on the spot by Alfretha is inhabited by a large congregation of nuns. To this instance of cruelty, the king's accusers add a second of lust. Hearing of the beauty of a certain virgin who was dedicated to God, he carried her off from a monastery by force, ravished her, and repeatedly made her the partner of his bed. When this circumstance reached the ears of St. Dunstan, he was vehemently reproved by him and underwent a seven years' penance, though a king submitting to fast and to forego the wearing of his crown for that period. They add a third, in which both vices may be discovered. King Edgar, coming to Andover, a town not far from Winchester, ordered the daughter of a certain nobleman, the fame of whose beauty had been loudly extolled, to be brought to him. The mother of the young lady, shocked at the proposed concubinage of her daughter, assisted by the darkness of night, placed an attendant in his bed, a maiden indeed neither deficient in elegance nor in understanding. The night having passed, when Aurora was hastening into day, the woman attempted to rise, and being asked, Why in such haste? She replied, To perform the daily labor of her mistress. Retained though with difficulty, on her knees she bewailed her wretched situation to the king, and entreated her freedom as the recompense of her connection with him, saying that it became his greatness not to suffer one who had ministered to his royal pleasure any longer to groan under the commands of cruel masters. His indignation being excited and sternly smiling, while his mind was wavering between pity to the girl and displeasure to her mistress, he at last, as if treating the whole as a joke, released her from servitude and dismissed his anger. Soon after, he exalted her with great honor to be mistress of her former tyrants, little consulting how they liked it, loved her entirely, nor left her bed till he took Alfretha, the daughter of Ordgar, to be his legitimate wife. Alfretha bore him Edmund, who, dying five years before his father, lies buried at Romsey, and Ethelred, who reigned after him. Besides, of Egelfleda, surnamed the Fair, the daughter of the most powerful Duke Ordmer, he begot Edward, and of Wolfthretha he begot St. Edith, who it is certain was not a nun at that time, but being a lay virgin who had assumed the veil through fear of the king, though she was immediately afterwards forced to the royal bed, 
on which St. Dunstan, offended that the king should desire lustfully a person who had been even the semblance of a nun, exerted the pontifical power against him. But however these things may be, this is certain, that from the sixteenth year of his age, when he was appointed king, till the thirtieth, he reigned without the insignia of royalty. For at that time, the princes and men of every order assembling generally, he was crowned with great pomp at Bath, survived only three years, and was buried at Glastonbury. Nor is it to be forgotten that when Abbot Aylward opened his tomb in the year of our Lord 1052, he found the body unconscious of corruption, which, instead of inclining him to reverence, served only to increase his audacity. For when the receptacle which he had prepared seemed too small to admit the body, he profaned the royal corpse by cutting it, whence the blood immediately gushing out in torrents shook the hearts of the bystanders with horror. In consequence, his royal remains were placed upon the altar in a shrine, which he had himself given to this church, with the head of St. Apollinaris and the relics of Vincent the Martyr, which, purchased at a great price, he had added to the beauty of the house of God. The violator of the sacred body presently became distracted, and not long after, going out of the church, met his death by a broken neck. Nor did the display of royal sanctity stop thus. It proceeded still further, a man, lunatic and blind, being cured there. Deservedly, then, does the report prevail among the English that no king, either of his own or former times in England, could be justly and fairly compared to Edgar. For nothing could be more holy than his life, nothing more praiseworthy than his justice, those vices excepted, which he afterwards obliterated by abundant virtues. A man who rendered his country illustrious through his distinguished courage and the brilliancy of his actions, as well as by the increase of the servants of God. After his departure, the state and the hopes of the English met with a melancholy reverse. So that's William of Malmesbury's account of Edgar, which leads into the story of Edward's brief and tragically abbreviated reign, thanks to the scheming of Althrith, his stepmother, and then the accession of Athelred Unrad to the throne. We see in the writing some of the authorial virtues that endear William to modern historians. He's upfront about informing his readers of when he's drawing from sources and what his opinion of those sources is. He remains interested and focused on relatively realistic human motivations, which are streaked with moral gray areas, uh, instead of classifying people cleanly into utterly pure saints and utterly corrupted devils. Uh, and I'd posit that even though William concludes today's text with evidence of the king's posthumously demonstrated holiness, and thus seems to place him firmly in the saint camp, uh, the narrative as a whole is not hagiography. Uh, if anything, the miracles seem to me to serve as a kind of historical justification for the existing cult of King Edgar. That is, they're necessary to explain the subsequent developments in Edgar's reputation, um, but aren't intrinsically tied to the events of the king's life, not as far as William has recorded them, at least. There are also examples of William's willingness to ornament the more straightforward history with a marvelous or curious anecdote. So, for the empirically-minded modern reader, you have legend obviously intruding into the history in these accounts of miracles. 
But Williams' inventiveness in his telling of the story runs deeper than that. Uh, We don't know exactly who Williams' sources were for this account of Edgar and his romantic conquests, but let's take a look at what our source closest to the original events says happened. Here is the account found in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Nine sixty-five. Here in this year, King Edgar took Alfthrith for his queen. She was the daughter of Ordgar Alderman. That's it. No murder. No scandal. No anecdotes about the ravishing of other maidens. No reports of Archbishop Dunstan chastising the king. Uh, Of course, the Chronicle does say more about Edgar than just this entry for 965 that we just heard, uh, but generally its tone is positive about the king. The only notable oddity in the Chronicle's coverage of Edgar is in the year 972, where it records, quote, Here Edgar Atheling was consecrated king at Bath on the mass day of Pentecost, on the 5th of the Ides of May, in the 13th year since he had succeeded to the kingdom, and he was then one less than 30 years of age. Why did the king's official coronation occur so many years after he succeeded to the throne? Well, William offers his story as at least one explanation for this mystery. And this highlights one of the ways that the medieval historian conceived of their task. It wasn't just to record what happened, um, but extended to reconstructing what plausibly could have happened or what ought to have happened according to the dominant values of the day, uh, such as demonstrations of holiness or bravery or other virtues or vices assigned to a historical figure, um, but which perhaps hadn't been fully illustrated in other sources, Um, and then rendering all of this in engaging, entertaining, and artful language, uh, with an element of moral instruction layered in as well. So the histories produced range in style from the vivid attempts to evoke the past in scene and narrative that you might find in a good modern pop historian, uh, though less frequently in scholarly historians, Uh, from that to the wholesale novelistic invention of the writer of historical fiction. William is praised by modern historians not because he eschews this practice, uh, but because he's somewhat more straightforward about acknowledging when he's interpreting outside sources. Uh, He provides a very bead-like level of meta-commentary on the relative quality of the pieces of information he's transmitting, as we see in today's text. And he also manifests a certain skepticism or even-handedness in his judgment, as opposed to sharply bending the bones of his narrative to suit a particular religious or moral or even artistic agenda, which many other historical tale-tellers of the Middle Ages do quite freely. Uh, We're going to see one of those next episode. That said, William is, as a writer, expanding on the bare bones of the narratives he's received. Now, he had other sources than the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle to fill in more details of Edgar's reign, But nonetheless, there are almost certainly elements here that are William's invention. Uh, Perhaps not whole cloth invention, but they are artifacts of his attempt to impose an order and a rationale on his material. One literary slash historical, and and put some scare quotes around historical, uh, one such influence on this version of the story is probably the biblical tale of King David and Bathsheba. Uh, This is one of the more famous biblical love triangles. Uh, So David falls in love with a married woman, Bathsheba, and has her husband, Uriah the Hittite, killed by ordering him to be more or less abandoned to the enemy during a battle. 
a more passive form of murder than what William has Edgar do in our story, um, personally wielding the javelin that runs Athelwald through. But remember the biblical detail for our second version of Athelwald's death in our next episode. A bit more to the point, the David Bathsheba story also has the prophet Nathan criticizing and warning the king that his lust will have dire consequences, uh, which leads to David having to perform acts of contrition and penance. And St. Dunstan is perhaps deliberately placed into the narrative uh, in order to play the role of Nathan and to reinforce a well-known biblical motif. A somewhat more obscure borrowing from ancient history is William's insertion of the anecdote about how Athelwald's son reacted to the murder of his father by rather cannily choosing to praise the king's judgment rather than condemn his crime or indulge in any kind of feud revenge. It's been pointed out that a very similar incident occurs in the ancient Greek historian Herodotus's account of the reign of the Persian king Cambyses. We haven't had a lot of opportunity to bring ancient Greek literature into the show, uh, and since it was part of my undergraduate double major, along with English, uh, I'd love to give you a snippet of Herodotus, uh, who also has a grand title, the father of Western history. Herodotus narrates that Cambyses was plagued by madness later in his reign, and that on one occasion he asked his loyal retainer Prexaspes what the Persians thought of their king. Prexaspes replies that they think the king drinks too much. Enraged, Cambyses decides to prove the steadiness of his hands in a horrific way. He says to Prexaspes, as given in the Penguin translation of Herodotus by Aubrey de Selincourt, I'll show you if the Persians speak the truth, or if what they say is not a sign of their own madness rather than of mine. You see your son standing there by the door? If I shoot him through the middle of the heart, I shall have proved the Persians' words empty and meaningless. If I miss, then say, if you will, that the Persians are right and my wits are gone. Without another word, he drew his bow and shot the boy, and then ordered his body to be cut open and the wound examined. And when the arrow was found to have pierced the heart, he was delighted, and said with a laugh to the boy's father, There is proof for you, Prexaspes, that I am sane and the Persians mad. Now tell me if you ever saw anyone else shoot so straight." Praxaspes knew well enough that the king's mind was unbalanced, so in fear for his own safety he answered, Master, I do not believe that God himself is a better marksman. I can't find any solid proposals for how this anecdote would have reached William. Uh, he did have some knowledge of ancient Greek, and manuscripts of Herodotus existed, uh, but we don't know that he ever read Herodotus directly. Now, this may well have come to him secondhand through a Latin history. But if this is an elaboration by William on the story of Athelwald's death, uh, and not something he's inherited from another source, it does make one wonder about William's own attitude to this king, drawing a link between his lusts and cruelty and the insanity of a famous tyrant. Rest assured, our next author isn't going to brook any such insinuations against the character of Edgar the Peaceful. Okay, time to wrap up. Last episode, I introduced a riddle from a new source of riddles, um, new to the show at least. Our riddle was, Six eyes are mine, as many ears have I, fingers and toes twice thirty do I bear. Of these, when forty from my flesh are torn, lo, then but twenty will remain to me. This is one of the riddles of Aldhelm, a seventh-century Anglo-Saxon saint and scholar, though, as it happens, a lot of Aldhelm's riddles are just variations on the riddles of Symphosius, which I've already been drawing from. Um, but there are different ones in there that we'll be checking out over time. 
this one is kind of a groaner. Uh, it's not really a metaphor. It's just a deliberately obscure description of a very specific circumstance. So what creature possesses six eyes and ears and similarly multiplied digits and then loses two-thirds of them all in a moment? Why, that would be a mother in labor with twins. If you got that one all on your own, you should feel very good about yourself. So with the riddle dispensed with, all that leaves is for me to set up a new mystery word. And this is a fun one. Part of the challenge here is just figuring out what language this one comes from, because it's not going to give you a lot of morphological clues. The word is E. That's spelled as the letter E, and then the letter E again. Just two E's. E. So here's a mystery word that you can't just Google or look up in the OED to identify correctly. If you have a guess as to the meaning I'm looking for for E, you can tweet it at me. We're at MDT Podcast on Twitter. You can also leave comments and get info about this and every episode at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. And you can reach me by email at Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com, as Daniel did not too long ago, uh, who caught a gaffe I made two episodes back when I repeatedly referred to the book of Revelations. It is, of course, the book of Revelation or the Revelation to John, or the Apocalypse of John. Um, but the proper title is not plural. Uh, and I got no excuse. I certainly learned in the past that Revelations is a misnomer. All I can say is that maybe the source texts uh, I was using of evangelical end times discussion boards and AM radio hellfire preachers who do like to say Revelations had seeped into my brain. Anyway, if you have corrections or questions or other feedback, uh, you've got Twitter, comments on the website, or Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com at your disposal. I am pathologically paranoid about mispronouncing English place names and proper names, uh, so although I will be mortified, I nonetheless genuinely appreciate corrections on such things by local authorities. It's the only way I'll learn. So we'll be back in about two weeks with the romance of Edgar and Alfthrith. But until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>